Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16. And if you don't have a Bible, we have uh, Bibles that are under the seats in front of you. Uh, they're black Bibles, and uh, uh, you are welcome to take one of those home if you don't own a Bible. But on, uh, in that Bible, it's page 925 on the um, right-hand side. And uh, we're looking at Acts chapter 16 uh, and uh, looking at a few particular verses of Acts 19, uh, verses uh, 11 to 15. So I want to read them, and then we are going to pray together this morning. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down, and we spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, she and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Father, thank you for your word today. And uh, just as we are so often uh, appreciative each Sunday, it's amazing that you were gracious enough to speak to us, that you created this amazing world in which we live, the things that we see and the things that we don't see. You sustain this world in which we live, the things that we see and the things that we don't see. You created us to be in a right relationship with you, and yet we abandoned that relationship and chose to go our own way. We rebelled against you. We were hostile towards you, and you certainly could have left us alone and never spoken to us again. But in your great grace and mercy, you came down to us. You came down to us and you spoke to us and you, you gave us your word. You came down to us in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. And you revealed yourself to us. You were longing that we should know you more. And so we are reading from the word that you have given us, the eternal word of God. As we've mentioned, we will pass away as we have heard of two people this week that have passed away. The things that we build and the things that we create will eventually rot and fade away. But this, your word, will never fade away. It will never rot. It is the eternal word of God. And so as we come to it, may we come to it with, um, with an attitude of respect. May we come to it wanting to listen and hear what you have for us to hear today. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. A couple of the verses that uh, I do like to quote in Scripture because they're just, I think, central to me. Uh, uh, one of them is from Romans 1, verse 16, and it's um, from the Apostle Paul as he's writing to the Romans. And he tells them, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and then the Greek. It's an amazing word to me because it tells us what we should be about. It tells us that this Bible matters. It tells us that the Word of God is important and we ought not to be ashamed of it because in it, people come to life in Christ Jesus. And another um, thing that I've been thinking about that's also been in my head this last uh, number of months, particularly, is the Lord's Prayer. And particularly the third petition of the Lord's Prayer which says, Thy kingdom come. It's an amazing reality to know that God's kingdom is coming to this world. It's increasing more and more in each and every day that we live here. And one day we're going to see the kingdom of God come in all its fullness when Jesus Christ returns. But until that day, it comes to us largely individually. 
in one life and in another life. And sometimes as a community is transformed by the power of God in that community. We wonder, what does that look like? What does it look like when the power of the gospel transform us and when the kingdom of God comes into our lives? Well, many of you here this morning know what that looks like. You know what that feels like. You were, you were as we use the words, you were lost. You were going your own way. You were, you were troubled by the habits that you had in your life. You were troubled by the things that you couldn't control. You came to a realization that you couldn't any longer deal with yourself and you needed help. And you found that help in Jesus Christ. And as you received Christ as your Savior, a light, so to speak, went on in your heart and life. It's hard to explain unless you become a Christian. But there's, you go from death to life. And so many of us have experienced that transformation. We've experienced the power of God in saving us. We know that the kingdom of God is coming into our life because it's less and less about us and it's more and more about God. And that's an amazing transformation. Well, we see these things at work now in the, in the book of Acts in the next four scenarios that we're going to look at. As, I, as, as we looked at last week, last week was the beginning of the gospel going into Europe. Astounding sort of historical note that now Jesus or God is saying, I want Europe to know about Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel. And so now we are in there. We are sort of at the first step now when the gospel comes to Europe. And we're going to look at four different stories over the course of the next three or four weeks. We're looking at one about a a woman named Lydia, the first convert ever in Europe. An amazing transformation as the power of the gospel comes in and changes her life. Next week, we're going to look at how the kingdom of God comes into a, a servant girl's heart who had been possessed by demons. She had a spirit in her that was used by her handlers, so to speak, to tell the future. And the kingdom of God came radically into her heart and life, and she was delivered from that spirit that, uh, that had so long controlled her. Then we're going to look at a story about a Philippian family. He was a jailer, and he was in charge of the jail. And we know that Paul and Silas were thrown into jail because they delivered that servant girl from the spirit that was in her. And as they were in jail in the middle of the night, uh, there was an earthquake, and the angel of God came down, and he he touched that prison so that all the chains of all the prisoners fell off and the doors flew open. And in those days, if a prisoner escaped, that meant the jailer was turf, dead, meat, killed. And so he was just about ready to take his own life. And Paul says, no, we're all here. Don't do that. And in the course of the conversation, he was just astounded by the power of God, astounded by the, 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 the grace that was demonstrated by Paul as he restrained everyone from fleeing. And he asked, what must I do to be saved? And as they shared the gospel with him, the power of God transformed his life as well. And then we're going to look at the way that a community is turned upside down when the kingdom of God comes into it. And so this is what we are, uh, uh, what we're coming up to in the next two or three weeks. And we get to look at the first account of this, which is in this, uh, this woman, Lydia. It's a description, and I'm going to say a little bit about this, about the providence of God. It's a word that we don't use in the English language very much, um, uh, we, we, we more often use the word chance, but that's not a biblical word, nor is it a biblical concept. We uh, talk about the word providence, and providence is, is, is the, the, the way that God sustains, guides, directs, and preserves the world. As I said last week even, God does not sit up in heaven and just let this world unwind. He is intimately involved in every single detail of this universe. He is the one that keeps the universe in place. He is the one that keeps the stars in place. He is the one that makes sure the sun rises and sets. 
He is the one that makes sure we have food. He is the one that makes sure gravity still functions. He is the one that makes sure that we have breath through the night when we're sleeping. He is a God of providence. And so we see that illustrated even in this text that we're looking at this morning. I doubt that it ever crossed Lydia's mind when she left Thyatira with her purple dyes and her cloth that she was going to find Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior over in Philippi. Neither did I think it crossed Paul's mind when he was trying to find his way to start sharing the gospel again and was finally directed to Troas. And then at Troas, he had this vision. And in the vision, there was a man from Macedonia calling him over and saying, help us. I think it probably did never cross Paul's mind that, in fact, the first person he would meet and share the gospel with and who would respond in a saving way was a woman. And so it's an amazing set of circumstances of the providence of God as he's bringing together these circumstances at just the right time and the right place in the right way so Lydia can hear about Jesus Christ. It's an amazing story to us. We need to get our geographical bearings, and there's an insert in your bulletin, and you've got some three little points, but on the back there's a map. I, I don't want to refer to it a whole lot other than it just gives you a sense of, of the route that they went. It says that they left from Troas, they set sail, they had bought passage on a boat, they left Troas, and they made a direct voyage to the island of Samothrace. They overnighted in this island, and then early the next morning, they jumped on the boat again, and they went into uh, uh, the port Neapolis. When they got to Neapolis, they took the Via Ignatia, a Roman road that was built to connect um, sort of the, 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 the west side of Italy all the way to the Black Sea. And they walked on this road for about nine miles until they came to Philippi. Philippi is a significant city and certainly was a significant city back in those days. It received in 42 BC its status as a Roman colony, a great privilege under Roman rule. And in that, uh, under that status... Um, they, 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 they had Roman customs, they had Roman dress, they guided, they directed themselves by Roman law. Um, uh, one of the great uh, gifts that was given to all the citizens of Philistine, who were Macedonians, was, was um, Roman citizenship. It's not unlike the United States going to some, some city, I don't know, let's pick a city in Africa somewhere, and deciding that it was a great city to, 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 to have an outpost in and saying to that particular city, all you residents will get citizenship in the United States. That's a huge issue. How many people go to the States trying to get citizenship? So this was a big deal, Roman citizenship. So essentially, Philippi was like a little Roman outpost. And to speak the gospel in Philippi was the next best thing to actually being in Rome speaking the gospel. That's how Romanized Philippi was. So that's the geographical bearings of, of where we are. Then we come to sort of the, the spiritual bearings in a corporate sense. We read that as Paul and his buddies came into the, the city, that um, I don't know what you would do if you came into a city and, and nobody had ever heard about Jesus Christ, nobody had ever heard about the gospel. How would you start? Who would you first go to talk to? How would you know that that was the person that you ought to share the good news of the gospel with? Well, I think Paul, like the rest of us, takes clues from his environment and his surroundings. And so you might say, well, you know, of all the people that I might speak to on the bus about the gospel, I'll speak to somebody who I, who, I, who I see they're reading a book on spirituality. That tells me that they're interested in spiritual things. Maybe I will sit down and strike up a conversation with them. Or you might be in a coffee shop and, and uh, you know, there might be a, a conversation with two people on the table across and they might be 
talking about some ethical issue. And I wonder if there's a God in this world. And you might say, I bet you I could interject in that conversation. And so there's an opening there. So we look for openings. Very few of the times do we just make a hard call, so to speak, with the gospel. So Paul and his buddies, they thought, well, we're going to see if we can find a Jewish synagogue. Well, in Philippi, there was no Jewish synagogue. That had been Paul's practice for years. Uh, when they go to a different city, they would find a synagogue. They would go there because there you've got people that are at least thinking about spiritual things, and that's the place to start. Well, it seems like in Philippi there was no synagogue. How do we know that? Well, generally, it takes 10 Jewish men to have enough men to start a synagogue. And so the fact that there wasn't a synagogue indicates that there weren't even 10 Jewish men that resided in Philippi. But the, the Jewish law made another provision, that if there were not that many men, then the law provided that any Jewish people who were there were able to meet by a river and have a prayer meeting. So Paul and his buddies, Paul who knew the Jewish law inside and out, would have said, okay, there's no synagogue, so the next best thing is I'll see if there's a prayer meeting happening, happening at the river. Off they go down to the river. And lo and behold, they find a prayer meeting taking place. And they began, and I, I love the, the, just the casual nature of how Luke describes this. He says, and we sat down and started to talk with them. I, I, that's just so casual. It's so normal. It's so just part of everyday life. We just sat down and we started to have a conversation with them. And I know that that conversation turned to the gospel. And I think that probably in the, in, in somewhere in the recesses of Paul's mind, before that song was ever written, I loved to tell the story. That was Paul's story. Paul loved to tell the story about Jesus Christ. He loved to tell people what Jesus Christ had done for them. He loved to tell them how Jesus Christ was the Messiah that the Jewish people had been waiting for and how he was the one who came not to give them physical deliverance, but actually spiritual deliverance. And so as they sat around the river that day, this small group of people, Paul shared about the good news of Jesus Christ. Again, this wasn't a chance meeting. This wasn't just a fluke that uh, they gathered together. Rather, this was the providence of God at work. The providence of God that, that brought this band who, uh, who, the last place they wanted to be months ago was in Macedonia. But yet God had directed them to Macedonia. Lydia, initially from Thyatira, a seller of purple and, and purple cloth. She could have been in any city in Macedonia. She could have been in Corinth. She could have been in, 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 in oh, they're gone from my head now. There's a bunch of them. She could have been in any number, but she happened to be at Philippi the same time God had brought Paul and this missionary group in a Philippi. This is God's providence. It's staggering the way that God brings these things about. And I believe that the providence of God is even at work here today. And I know that because the fact that every one of us is here today, we are here because God wants us here. We have come from all over the island, and from all over Canada, and some from farther. How is it that we have gathered together in this place, at this time, on this day, and are in this text of Scripture. Because God wants us here today. I believe that with all of my heart. And so it is no accident that you are here today, and it is no accident that we are talking about how Lydia became a follower of Jesus Christ. So then we move a little bit more and we talk, talk about Lydia. The way that God has drawn this group of people and now the focus is on Lydia. 
Lydia, we, we don't know a ton about her. It says, though, that she was from the city of Thyatira, that she was a seller of purple. Most people think that because she was a businesswoman and she was out traveling like this, that either she was a widow or she had maybe never married to be engaged in this kind of business opportunity. She was a seller of purple, purple dyes. That was her business. Um, she came from a strong guild. Thyatira was known for its guilds. We would call them unions today. But they were way more powerful than unions are today. They would dictate um, your social circumstances. They would dictate your religious practices. They would dictate whether you could buy or sell. And so that was the environment in which she had grown up in economically. Thyatira was an economic powerhouse because of the guilds that were there. But we also know something about the spiritual context of Thyatira. On your own, and I was going to read it this morning, but we will run out of time. Um, Revelations chapter 2, verses 18, I think it's to 29, is a letter written to the Christians at Thyatira. And God had commended them for a few things, but then he had this against them. He said that, that you are, you are, um, uh, you are uh, compromising your faith. You are, you are trying to have a foot on both sides of the fence. And, and he talks about, uh, we're reminded that there was a, a woman and she was called Jezebel. And we don't know if it was, that was her actual name or that was a way to help us understand Jezebel of the Old Testament. And what she had been doing was she had been leading that city and particularly Christians had been caught up in her immorality. And there were deep things of Satan that were taught in that city. It was a dark, bleak city. Yet that was the city that Lydia was from. But in the midst of that, we find that Lydia was a worshiper of God. What does that mean? Well, that certainly doesn't mean she was a Christian. Because Cornelius was also a worshiper of God. But God brought Peter to Cornelius. And Peter shared the gospel with Cornelius. And it said he and his household believed and were saved. So she was a worshiper of God. I think what that means is somehow she had come in contact with the Jewish synagogue in Thyatira. She had come in contact with those individuals and she said, I, there's something about this faith. There's something about this religion. It's different from the pluralism that I'm involved in, from the many gods. I like this monotheism. She began to embrace Jewish ways of living, their eating standards, their religious standards. She liked the law. So she was sort of a follower of Judaism. She worshipped the God of Judaism, but not in a way that expressed saving faith. So she was searching. She was hungry. She was wanting to know more. She was a worshiper of God. Luke then begins to tell us some details about her, which I, I, I find them fascinating. Just the simplicity of the gospel and how one comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Luke tells us that one who heard us was a woman named Lydia. I like the way the NASB puts it. It says, A certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. She was listening. I think as Luke sat around and watched that band of people, he observed that particularly Lydia was, was maybe sitting up, maybe leaning in. There was evidence in her body posture and in the way about her that she was listening intensely to what, be, what was being said. She was sort of riveted on every word that Paul in this group was saying. She was engaged in the conversation. She was intentive or attentive to what was being said. It's the same word, by the way, that's used of Mary. When Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, and, and she was, it says she was listening to Jesus. She was like a sponge. She was soaking in everything that Jesus was saying to her. Well, so Lydia was doing the same thing. Listening matters. 
we understand that, don't we? You know, you, you lean forward so that you, you somehow you think, if I'm just a little bit closer, I'll hear just a little bit better. We, we, we focus in such a way that, you know, sometimes, and, you know, this is the husband, well, I get in trouble. But, you know, I'm so focused on maybe watching uh, a sports thing or something, and my wife will be saying something from the kitchen, and I am so focused, I don't think, hear a thing she says. And I don't. It's honest. I'm focused. But that's, that's the kind of listening that's being spoken of here. It's the ability, as she's listening, to just kind of put out all distractions around her. I recall speaking with one in our congregation a, a number of times and tells a story about being confronted on the streets of Parksville by an angry citizen. And uh, this, this angry citizen just gave them a mouthful. Just went on and on and on and just, just, just gave them a mouthful about what was on their mind. And then after they had finished, uh, they waited a moment and they said, well, do you have anything to say? And he stopped for a moment, pondered for a couple more seconds, and then he said, you know, my mother always told me we have two ears, one to let it in and the other to let it out, and walked away. <laughs> now, that's not the way we ought to listen. Uh, you know, and, and sometimes I, I wonder, why didn't God give us one ear and two noses? Um, you know, so that it would just stay in our heads a little bit better. But nonetheless, she was listening. And I find it fascinating um, that, that sometimes as people, we can listen to a lecture that goes for 60 minutes, 90 minutes in university or at school. We can go to a political rally and hear a politician give a speech for 45 minutes, 50 minutes, an hour. We can go to the movie theater and watch a show for... Uh, for three hours and not get up and not leave because we're listening and watching the show. But sometimes we come to church and we listen to a sermon and after 25 minutes we start getting fidgety and say, it's time to get out of here. I don't understand why that happened. Um, none of you are fidgeting, are you? Um, but, you know, we, we ought to be able to, you know, where's, where's the focus? Where, where's the listening? So it says that she was listening to what Paul was saying. The next thing, it says, which I find fascinating as well, it says, the Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart. Oh, may God open hearts in this place this morning. May God do a work that you or I can never do. May God get inside of lives today and open hearts. The word is a word that's used to describe opening something that was previously shut. It's a word that is used to describe somebody who's blind and Jesus prayed for them and he healed them and he opened their eyes. But it's also a word that describes to us spiritual openings. It's a word that, that, that is used to describe when the eyes of our mind and our hearts are open to see things that before we didn't perceive. For instance, there's an account in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17. And there was a prophet in the Old Testament called Elisha. And Elisha had been um, predicting the movements of an army. And the, the Syrian king was frustrated because every time he was to come and attack Israel, Elijah would say, well, he's coming here. You need to go there. And so he just kept thwarting the king's attempt to attack Israel. So finally, they had Elijah cornered in a city. And one mo morning they woke up and Elijah's servant, servant woke up and he got up and he stood up on the wall and he looked around it. And all around the city was this army of the Syrians. And their one intent was to catch Elisha so they could kill him. And he comes to Elijah and he says, My Lord, the armies of the king of Syria are surrounding the city. 
And it's amazing what Elijah does. I love this kind of faith. And loved ones, this is the kind of faith that we ought to have. He says, oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he might see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots and fire all around Elisha. Loved ones, there is a spiritual realm and reality all around us right now that we can't see with our physical eyes, but it nonetheless exists. And with the power of God, he at times can open our eyes to see that reality. There's another couple instances. There's a there's a group of or two disciples, and Jesus had just been crucified, and he'd been laid in the in the tomb, and and um, it's a couple days after that, and they're walking home from Jerusalem, and they were they were discouraged, and they were bummed out, and they were sad, and they were saying, "Well, man, I guess this wasn't going to happen." You know, Jesus, he had said that all this was going to happen, and then the, that he was going to rise from the dead, and now it's three days, and he's still dead, and we're really in trouble. And it says that Jesus found them and started walking with them. And he was walking with them. He started to open up the Old Testament scriptures to them. And he, I'm sure he would have gone to, to, to Genesis chapter 3 and to Psalm 110 and to Isaiah 53 and all sorts of passages all through the Old Testament and said, see, that's talking about me. See, that's talking about me. See, that's talking about what had to happen to me. And then this would happen to me. And then I would rise from the dead. And it says that as he was, that I was talking, it says their hearts were warm, but they still didn't get it. But then we read this in Luke 24, 45. And then he opened their minds to understand Scripture. And then a little bit later, or a little bit earlier, it says, and, he, and, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. You see, there's a blindness that's over our hearts and minds. There's an inability that all of us are born with that makes it impossible for us to see spiritual things. And unless God does a miraculous work in our hearts and lives and opens the eyes of our minds and our hearts, we will never see the truth about Jesus Christ. And if you are praying for somebody and wanting somebody to come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, then pray that God would do what only God can do, that he would open the eyes of their heart to see. In Romans chapter 10, Paul writes, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart. See, there's got to be a heart transformation. There's got to be something that takes place in our hearts before we will see who Jesus is. And it's, it's, it's wonderful. To me, I am just so thankful because I sometimes pound my head against the wall. Why don't they see? Why can't they get it? I've talked to them. I've prayed for them and they don't get it. And I think, oh, but God, you can open the eyes of their heart. Will you not work in their behalf? Why is it? Why, why is it? Why do we need God to open our hearts? Well, if we had time, I would take you through Scripture after Scripture after Scripture today that says the heart of mankind is hard. The heart of mankind, Jeremiah says, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Our hearts are stubborn. Our hearts have been clouded by sin. Matthew tells us that sin doesn't come to us from outside. We are not made sinners because of stuff that comes to us from outside. We are made sinners because of the evil that's in our hearts. And out of our heart comes anger and lust and murder and greed. It's in us. And it's because it's in us, we can't see. And because our hearts are hard and stubborn and hateful towards God, we need God to do what only He can do to open the eyes of our heart so that we can see the beauty 
of Christ. And so we read here that God opened her heart to pay attention to what was said. Paul, in another place in Corinthians, says that the God of this world, which is Satan, the God of this world has blinded the hearts of uh, mankind. Or let me read it properly. Um, Oh, it's going. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Why can't people see who Jesus is? Because the God of this world has blinded their eyes so that they cannot see Jesus. But then the very next word is so full of hope in that passage because um, we read there that, that God, though, as he speaks and he says, let light shine out of darkness. That's what God does. He says, let light shine out of darkness. It's like he peels back the darkness of our heart and he bursts forth the light of Christ. And we see Jesus. God's intention was that Lydia would be saved. You know, it's important to understand nobody is ever saved against their will. Sometimes people think that, well, you know, you're going to drag me into heaven. God doesn't drag anybody kicking and streaming into heaven. Do you know that? But God, by his providence, has a beautiful way of gently but clearly leading us to himself in Christ Jesus. How else did he, you know, this is amazing that God so loved Lydia that he directed, he, he directed the course of four men at least, hundreds of miles to a riverbank that he directed the course of a seller of purple who lived in Thyatira, who could have been anywhere in Greece, to a riverbank. And she willingly had gone there. And God just had gently drawn her towards himself to the point where he could open her heart to receive the good news about Jesus Christ. There's the Spirit of God who worked in her heart to open it to pay attention to what Paul was saying. I love that verse. You know, we've already, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said. Uh, to pay attention is, 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 is I, I love that. Just like, there could have been all kinds of distractions. She would have been thinking, well, okay, I know it's the Sabbath, but I've got to go into Philippi and I've got to open my store and I've got to make sure i got all my bats of my cloth and I've got to get my purple dyes and what's going on in my house and, and, who knows what you're distracted by today? I pray that you are paying attention. We might be distracted by, by something that happened this week. We might be distracted by a, a business decision that's coming up this week. We might be distracted by something we want to watch on TV when we get home this afternoon. But I hope that you are paying attention right now. Because it's as we pay attention that our eyes are open and that we listen attentively and we get it. And when people engage, uh, the speaker engages. And you want to uh, you want to encourage somebody who's speaking, pay attention to them. You want to, and there's not many kids here, but you want to encourage your mom and dad, pay attention to them. I mean, I remember, you know, we had three boys and they were just off the wall. And and you know, one of the things that we used to always try and do was eye contact. Look at me, you know, <laughs> and because if you didn't have their attention, you could be talking to them and they're just all over the place. You know, can I? No, you want them to pay attention to you. Well, Lydia was doing that here. She was focused. She was paying attention. I was reading a story in a sermon today. And a man had said something about which he wished, about which he wished to make very, very clear. He says, why? It's as plain as ABC. 
Yes, said the third, third party, but you are talking to a man, uh, or the man you are talking to is D-E-F. And, and you know, sometimes we, we think we're making the most amount of sense, but somebody we're talking to is just like a blank wall. But no, Lydia, she was paying attention. And I believe that if you pay attention, if you listen to the gospel, if you listen to what God is saying to you, if you listen to what you have heard and you put it all together and you pay attention, you will find Christ. You will come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior. The, the, the next thing, and we're almost done, sort of. We'll, we'll get, pay attention. Um, it says, as she listened to us, the Lord, the Lord opened her heart. And the word pay attention also can mean to accept or to receive. It's got that, it's a, it's a word that you can't find one single word to translate it. And so what, what Luke is also saying that in paying attention, she accepted. In paying attention, she said yes to the gospel. In paying attention, for the very first time, she realized that Jesus Christ was the one that she was longing for. That Jesus Christ was the Messiah that she had been reading about. That Jesus Christ was the purpose behind everything that she had ever been born for and created for. It's all of a sudden like a light went on inside. It says, I understand it. I get it. I need Christ. Jesus is the one who is the Messiah that all the Old Testament scriptures point about. He is the answer to my guilt and shame. He is the answer to those things that control me and hold power over me. He is the answer to my hopelessness. He is the answer to my despair. He is the answer to my anxiety and my worry. He is the anxiety my, or my answer to not knowing what the future holds. And if all I have to do is trust him, then I'm in. If all I have to do is say, I receive him, then I receive him. And it's on that riverbank, at that prayer meeting, and as Paul spoke, she says, I want Jesus to be the Savior of my life. She paid attention. She accepted. She responded. And she was immediately saved. Loved ones, the gospel is no more complicated than that. We're going to gather around the Lord's table and celebrate the simplicity of the gospel. It is no more difficult than realizing that you are lost, realizing that you are a sinner, realizing that you are at odds with God, realizing that you need a Savior, a substitute, finding that substitute in Jesus Christ and saying, Jesus, I trust you to be the one who has taken away my sins, and you are saved. It's no more complicated than that. And the next thing that happens, she was baptized. After she was baptized in her household as well. I love that, the simplicity of the gospel. She was baptized. If you were to take a quick survey of the book of Acts, you would find that the conversion experience is made up of three or four or five different things that all go together to make up the conversion experience. There's repentance. There is faith. There is confession of Jesus as Lord and Savior. There is baptism. There is receiving the Spirit. These are all part of the conversion experience, to put it, to, 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 that's just the best, best way to explain it. It's, it's an experience. Why have we separated these? Why have we done that, loved ones? We, we talk about repentance and we say, yeah, I've repented of my sin. We talk about confessing and believing in Jesus. Yes, I believe in Jesus. We, 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 we talk about all of that stuff. And then we say, well, have you been baptized? No. How long have you been a Christian? 18 years. Why? What has happened that we have separated baptism so far from conversion? 
You don't find that anywhere in Scripture. And I understand some of the things that we do and some of the traditions we put in place. I understand them, but when you come back to Scripture, you don't find them there. Baptism is part of the conversion experience. I was reading, actually, there's a good book on the table on baptism. Uh, a great book on baptism. And uh, I was reading in it, and there's an analogy that they present in there. It says, the analogy of marriage provides a helpful comparison for becoming a Christian. Becoming married involves a number of components. The saying of vows, the ring exchange, the pronouncement, the signing of the registry, and sexual consummation. Which component actually resulted in being married? In the normal experience of marriage, all these aspects are included. That's what it means to get married. They all occur on the same day. They are all components of what it means to be married. Jesus said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Was there some debate that took place between Paul and Lydia? There might have been. You know, Lydia might have said, well, baptism, I've heard about that. Um, you know, do I need to be baptized? And Paul would have said, well, yeah, of course you need to be baptized. You know, why do I need to be baptized? Well, baptism is a way of testifying that you are deciding to obey Jesus. Baptism is a way of saying in your, to, to all those around you that you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Baptism is a way in which we identify with Christ. And we're going to talk about that in a couple of minutes. We identify with the death of Christ. That's why we do immersion. You go down into the water. And then we identify with the raising up of Christ. We come up out of the water. And so baptism is simply a way of saying, I have identified with Jesus Christ. I'm identified with his death. And I'm identified with his resurrection. And so as they chatted about that, she would have said, okay, I want to be baptized. Just like the, uh, the Ethiopian guy there riding down the road on the chariot. Um, uh, Philip had explained the gospel to him. And he had become a Christian. And they come by a pool of water. And I think it was a pool of water. Because he says, look, a pool of water. Let's go down into the water. They go down in the water. And it says, and they came up out of the water. And he was baptized. He got on his chariot and went on going. That's part of the conversion experience. If you've never been baptized and yet confessed to be a follower of Jesus Christ, why haven't you been baptized? You need to be baptized. I need to close at this point. There's, there's a little bit more, but um, uh, I just, uh, I, the simplicity of this text is so beautiful to me. The providence of God as he brings one person to faith in Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel as it, uh, as it comes in and shines light into the darkness of Lydia's heart. Oh, may God open hearts in this place this morning. May some yet come to realize that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And that Jesus Christ longs to be the Savior of you.